Okay, hello. Uh, this is What's Left of Philosophy. I'm Gil. Here with me today is William. Hey, how are you doing? Owen. Hey, Gil. And Lillian. Hi, Gil. Hi, everybody. So today we're recording the very first episode of the podcast, and I think we're going to be starting it off right uh, with a discussion on Louis Althusser, who is uh, one of the most important influential Marxist philosophers of the 20th century. So in the past week or so, all four of us have taken a look at a couple of his uh, pieces from the mid to late 1960s. Uh, I've long been a big fan of, really influenced by Althusser, uh, but I thought it would be a good place for us to sort of kick off this project that we're doing together because I think all four of us share a couple of uh, the ideas that he expresses in these pieces. And in particular for us, like all four of us are trained philosophers. And I think we all kind of agree in one way or another in the idea that there is a uh, an important class political dimension to philosophy and philosophical work. That, as he puts it, philosophy is like class struggle in theory, which is something that I think the four of us all kind of agree on in some form or fashion. And it's something that we've not always found is true of academic philosophy, um, that it, you know, it, it represents, as, as Althusser would put it, uh, other interests, bourgeois class interests instead of you know, working class or proletarian interests. Um, mm -hmm. So there's, uh, the pieces that we looked at for today were uh, Philosophy as a Revolutionary Weapon and Lenin in Philosophy, uh, which are both in the volume Lenin in Philosophy. And uh, also, I think some of us may have had a chance to look at this essay, theory, um, Theoretical Practice, uh, Theoretical Formation, Ideology, and Ideological Struggle, uh, which is contained in the volume Philosophy and the Spontaneous Philosophy of the Scientists. And the more sort of popular piece that I think all of us have known from other contexts, which is like super well-known, is Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses, also collected and in Lenin and Philosophy. When we post this episode, we're, we're going to post you know, citations and where you can find those pieces, right? Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. awesome. um, the, the episode description should have all of this info, but I'm kind of just tossing it out there. Um, so I, like I said, I think the, the sort of starting point maybe for our discussion could be this idea of uh, philosophy as sort of class struggle in theory, like what it is exactly that that means um, and what mm -hmm. it means to undertake this kind of struggle, as he puts it. Right At a couple of places, he says things like, philosophy is uh, this function of like drawing a dividing line, um, mm. which I think is really powerful. I find it really helpful. Um, a lot of times I find that, mm. yeah, I like to, I want to see more lines drawn maybe. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't like a, a nice stark division every now and again, but you know, I guess, yeah, I would like to throw out my first question. So um, I'm a little bit you know, newer to Althusser, so I kind of want to get clear on things. But, you know, he, it seems as if at least part of the struggle is about educating the class instincts of the proletariat, but also revolutionizing the class instincts of the intellectual. How do you all think that works? So I get I go back and forth where it seems as if partially Althusser is saying that, you know, something needs to come from the outside to help with the proletarian struggle but also the intellectual, the bourgeois intellectual who can be caught with other interests, you know, um, other worldviews must also be freed from how they see things. So how is theory supposed to do this? Does it have anything to do with um, what he talks about with science? No, I, I like this idea, first of all, just even 
identifying, like if you step back from the way you put that question and just the importance of even identifying that there are class instincts among intellectuals, right? Because one of the things I take Althusser to be doing is to be attacking philosophy's sense of its autonomy, right? The idea that, you know, there's an autonomous philosoph philosophical practice, and then there are fields like, I don't know, normative philosophy, political theory, where then you go out and apply these, you know, these kind of crystalline concepts that you've, that you've developed in cool isolation. So just the idea that there is an unassailable and ineluctable, ineluctable embeddedness of all philosophical practice inside a set of real material struggles, and that it, you know, there's no option of extricating philosophy from that those material struggles. You can either relate to them self-consciously, mm. i.e., read some, you know, take Marxism seriously, take historical materialism seriously, uh, or there, you can there's just like be... one way to do it, isn't there? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we're exactly. Lines. Or or you can or you can just get bogged down in idealist illusions and the and you know the illusion of that philosophical autonomy. And I like that he's you know that's the decision he he lays out for us. I mean, listen. Okay, so I think that philosophy, like philosophy, the way it thinks about itself is that it's like the queen of the sciences. You know what I mean? It's like a step removed. Um, and it's the thing that's able to create the theory of other things and like create a place. Um, you're like an observer of the other sciences, their methodologies, their assumptions. And one of the things that Althusser brings up is that what drives philosophers like more crazy than like any other things that drive them crazy is like political people, like people <laughs> who are part like, you mm -hmm. know, because the, the uh, essay is about Lenin. Yeah. So, but I also think Lenin's kind of a stand-in figure for like every other political person. So like if you go into a room and everybody is like waxing philosophical about justice or about some concept that they think is like describing the world at large and you're just like, yeah, but like why is this useful to like so-and-so or like how is this going to help me address this problem? Like that's like the kind of question that is going to make a philosopher like extremely nervous and they're like, well, that might, that's not my job. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're going to say, I don't have a program. Like well, yeah. That, so, like, the worst yeah, thing you can good, ask yeah, somebody always, at like a conference, a conference, is just like, okay, so like, what do you think? Like, and I, and I do this kind of shit all the time, so I, I know the reaction. I'm like, so what do you like think about? You know, like capitalism, like, or like, what Ooh. do you think about socialism? Like, why can't socialism be the alternative? Why is it this like abstract thing? that like has all that you have all these principles and like why can't you like put a name to that like what's the what's the problem and the problem is like the unwillingness to like create dividing lines because in the context in which people are arguing there's this kind of like bourgeois civility that goes down and the reason that like Althusser brings, brings attention to Lenin is because Lenin doesn't give a fuck about any of that, yeah, you know? And so, yeah. and so there's this way in which like Lenin is in this position or whoever the political, I think Lenin's really like an archetype of the political person. He's the person who's able to create a theory about philosophy. He's yes. able to see philosophy from the outside and be yes. like, Hey, so actually like, you know, so, okay. An example, people who um, are really into like Foucault, nothing drives them crazier than being like actually like your interest in Foucault and your like attachment to this paradigm is that it's like a part of neoliberal discourse that drives them insane because they can't like think about it as like you know it's I'm a true. symptom of it's my time true. you know do you know what I'm saying yeah, it's not true it's not true <laughs> it couldn't be what's interesting maybe, maybe not uh, true of, sir, of a certain Foucault 
<laughs> it seems, oh. seems true of other Foucaults. Oh, by the way, I wasn't making that as a declarative statement. I was just playing a role of saying it's <laughs> not <laughs> true. The aggrieved <laughs> intellectual. Yeah. Yes, who is deeply wounded. But yeah. you know, so what's interesting about drawing dividing lines is that it seems like sometimes the dividing line is drawn between doing philosophy and doing politics, which allows for an obs- you know obscuring of the fact that one sides are being picked. But drawing that dividing line so that one doesn't have to make distinctions. I was part of a conversation recently. Uh, it was around, I hope this isn't controversial. I don't think it will be. It was around uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. And you know, someone was trying <laughs> well, to convince boy, me. JP. Uh, I knew it was going to be controversial. I knew it wasn't. <laughs> Who was trying to convince me that you know, Sartre's interesting politically, but philosophically there's nothing there and i and i kept trying to push them like why that distinction was so firm and you know the person was willing to concede sure his politics are nice but you know there's not much there there and i and i thought that's an interesting way to dismiss you know what is going on and also the way philosophy can be engaged and it seemed like there is actually a philosophical move being made there to make mm-hmm. something non-philosophical which mm-hmm. althusser pushes on and is saying, no, 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 that's not a natural choice. That is actually, in essence, a political choice being made, right? Totally. I mean, well, so like, yeah, he says that there, like, there's two things that philosophy, like to piggyback on what Lillian was saying, the philosophers find intolerable. And one is that, uh, that a politician, like, you know, a right. lowly politician could have sure. something to teach philosophy. And the, the other is that like philosophy could be made the object of a, a kind of thinking, right? That mm. itself, instead of just being like the mode of thought itself, or just like the way that thinking happens, that it could be made the object of reflection. Um, you know, and philosophy usually thinks that it's the only thing adequate to that task, right? It's sort of, I, I can be, philosophy could be reflexive on itself or take itself as an object. But Althusser is very clear. He's like, no, well, in order for this to work, you'd have to have like a non-philosophical theory of philosophy, right? a theory mm. of philosophy. Mm. Um, and that theory is going to like take its coordinates from politics on the one hand and something like the state of scientific knowledge on the other, right? Both of which he thinks are external to philosophy and the work that philosophy does itself. The other thing I was thinking, well, when you said that is like, um, yeah, like a when, when someone says something like, oh, we've got like philosophy on the one hand and politics on the other, right? Like, you know, th- we can isolate the political and the philosophical lines in, uh, in, a, in a given thinker. Um, it's, it's nonsense, right? And like the reason why it's nonsense, it's actually kind of interesting. I think that like, you know, the Zizek got a lot of play a bunch of years ago for saying things like the most ideological thing you can say is that you don't have an ideology or that you're <laughs> outside ideology. Like, that's the most, like, if you say that, you're just, like, just telling on yourself. You're like, I'm trapped, right? I don't know what I'm talking about. And in the same way, like, I think that's the sort of thing that Mm -hmm. Althusser is saying about philosophy. You don't get to say uh, that your philosophy is apolitical or that it doesn't express some political movement tendency, that it doesn't take a position. What would that even mean? What would that even mean? I don't even know, right? And, uh, yeah. 
By the way, I just want to like say, you know, just quick side note for our viewers at home. I promise Zizek will not be someone who keeps coming up in this podcast. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I'm very like, sorry. You know, even a broken clock, right? But you know. It's a broken clock situation. I think everything you need to know about Zizek is that he, he recently wrote a book called Sex, The Failed Absolute. And it's like, all right, Slavoj, I don't know, man. You're on your own. I, I do not know. <laughs> so, okay so you yeah. were saying that like philosophy is like the most ideological thing you can say is if you don't have an idea that you don't have an ideology so i remember this website it's called like centrism.biz have you oh, visited no. this website biz. Oh, that sounds <laughs> so good though okay so it's literally it's, liter it's literally like this website like parodying like centrist thought that makes me think it's kind cool. of like philosophy so it's like the headline <laughs> is like what if a movement dot 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 stood still and then it's oh, like, no. and, <laughs> and then centrism.biz rejects ideology. Are facts ideology? Is evidence an ideology? Is zealously pursuing low taxes for the rich, deregulation, privatization, austerity, military interventions, and aggressive policing while masking that ideology with feel-good, socially progressive-sounding pablum and ideology? No. You mean to tell me that's ideology? Get out of here. That's well, crazy. then I guess everything's ideology. It's just, you know, there's, there's nothing. It's just chaos, I guess. That's so funny. No, but even in this, in this piece, right, in Lenin and philosophy he says that philosophy this is a quote philosophy like religion and ethics is only ideology right and then you know weird things follow from that on his line it has no history everything that looks like it happens inside it actually happens outside it uh right in the only real history the the history of the material life of human beings but he thinks that philosophy is a kind of ideology and that there's no outside to that and then the interesting and hard thing to think i think for him um, and, and for us, I guess, right, is like that doesn't mean that there aren't truths produced in and through this like ideological sort of discursive formation or like this like mode of, of doing thinking. But like that's not what it essentially is, right? Like sometimes truths can be produced um, and like then like the philosophical work is to try to distinguish those true from false ideas. But you don't get to say that you're outside of ideology just because you're doing philosophy, and again, like, you know, as Lillian's rightly pointed out, like philosophers hate hearing that. Like tell tell that to tell that to anyone at a conference. I think we should, you know, say a little bit more about what Althusser thinks ideology is. So I was kind of surprised by this, honestly, where it's not simply false. It is you know, ideology is sure it's a distortion, but you know, something you know, something still true comes through ideology, I take it, because it's still connected to, you know, what he calls the the social totality. And so it seems to me that allows him the out of, you know, not, you know, uh, contradicting himself in a fatal way, which is, you know, simply saying philosophy is, a, you know, also ideological, doesn't mean that it can't actually express something true if the proper relation is brought to it. But, you know, getting there, I was wondering what you all thought about that he seems to think that there's this essential, quote, theoretical time lag for philosophy and science. So I guess I have two questions. One, how can ideology still, you know, um, gain us some territory of truth? And two, why do we still need philosophy, you know, if it is that it, if it is the case that's always chasing this science that actually does clarify the social totality? Isn't philosophy just useless yeah. on this account? Well, I think one way to start answering that is his claim. I take it to be his claim um, that 
philosophy doesn't create or generate truths, right? Mm. Truths are generated by science, right? So, um, and what philosophy does is, and I guess this is how you would distinguish it from ideology, is that philosophy organizes and clarifies, it ramifies and disseminates those truths that are created in non-philosophical fields. Um, and um, yeah, so, and, and so then ideology then would be a field of thinking that distorts what is the truths that are being generated in these other fields, right? It doesn't, it, it takes insights from, from, you know, empirical sciences and it filters them through, let's say if we're talking about ideology and philosophy through empiricism or through positivism, right? And then, so you're getting, you know, discoveries and important kind of breakthroughs, important truths that are being generated in, in, in the sciences and you're having them ideologically distorted by philosophers who are into empiricism and positivism and, Mm. Uh, yeah, other other idealist forms mm. of philosophy. Does that make sense? I'd also say that, yeah, it yeah. does. It totally makes sense. The other thing that, so, like, part of why I've been so in love with Out the Surf for so long is because I'm, I'm a Spinozist, and, like, I see Spinoza all over this, mm -hmm. right? And so mm. let me just tell you what I mean by that, right? Like, Spinoza yeah. distinguishes between three kinds of ideas or three kinds of knowledge, right? Uh, this, like, first kind of knowledge that he says is inadequate. He'll also say imaginary. Um, mm. and then the second kind is like, is now final is adequate knowledge, but it's kind of knowledge of like relations or like things in common, right? Calls them common notions. And the third kind is also adequate knowledge, but it's adequate knowledge of individual things. He calls singular essences. Yeah. And like imaginary ideas aren't wholly inadequate. They're right? not, they're totally just confused, they're not muddled yeah. and some, and more deficient than more adequate ideas. Exactly. Okay. And so yeah, like, okay. there's a couple of things about this way of like <clears throat> parsing the difference in the, di these different kinds of like ideas or knowledge that I think is helpful and useful here. And one of them is that like, uh, you know, for, for Spinoza, and I mean, I think probably for every, like, genuinely critical thinker, uh, you can't just say that, like, uh, even, like, a false idea has to have some, even a false idea has to have some reality to it. It's got to have come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And in that relation, that anchorage, like, where did this, like, imaginary idea come from? That expresses something true, actually. So now there's something mm -hmm. true even in the inadequate. Right. And so like the examples that like Spinoza will give are like, uh, I don't know, it looks like the sun's 200 feet away or the examples that like Althusser will give. Uh, and I think that we think about like ideology in this sort of like Marxist register. It's like I'm the producer of the conditions for my own existence. Um, uh, it, where, whereas, in fact, I'm like, you know, beholden to the system of capitalist exploitation. But even mm. in thinking that about myself, which is in a certain sense inadequate, well, there's still something true about it. At the same mm -hmm. time, it expresses something about the way that hmm. uh, my my understanding works and how that's got a history and a, and a genesis in this like social and material reality. So that's the first thing that's cool about I think uh, inadequate ideas in Spinoza's terms, ideology and Althusser's. The second thing that I think is really important is that it doesn't go away, right? Just because you get outside mm -hmm. of it, you know, just because you get outside of your like ideological like sort of representation of yourself and grasp something true truer than what you thought before those imaginary ideas continue to do work they still continue to like really determine your your understanding and your desire right like you know i can know that um i can i can prove if i'm if i'm being careful that like uh you know just to take to take an example from like capital one that like uh there's a difference between like absolute and relative surplus value and whatever and then I'm still going to like go to work the next day and think that like 
um, maybe maybe this is going to be fine. Maybe um maybe mm-hmm. I'll be one of the ones who makes it or something like this, right? And so like mm. the ideological stuff stays there. And so like the work then is is like Owen was saying of like philosophy seems to be like trying to do that now dividing line work internally to these like representations that like populate our minds, the ones that are more and less adequate, right? Truer and falser with the understanding that there's no fully false idea. Like what would that even mean? Right. I feel like a fantastic example of what you're Mm. saying is about like academics seeking jobs. Mm. So like everyone knows, right? Like everyone knows what is wrong with the scenario. Everybody knows that there's no jobs. Everyone knows that this is not a meritocracy and like how, it's like you hardly even need to say it. Like you know it's bullshit basically. But then as soon as like people are actually competing for jobs, suddenly everyone deserves it. Like so everyone feels like they're entitled oh, wow. to the position they got. You know what I mean? And like <laughs> wow. I find that really <laughs> I, No, it's just like you know, like I'm a little shook is all. Well, okay, like, like think about how many times like even like left liberal academics will sit around being like, Yeah, meritocracy is a myth, right? Like we know America is like this capitalist, racist, and sexist place, and like we know how unfair the world is. But as soon as you're competing for the job or as soon as you get a spot that like you know is like a a product of like a uh, a tight labor market like you are going to get really defensive if like someone tells you that like maybe you don't deserve that job any more than any other person deserve that job. Um, so that you're going to have to like develop a set of justifications and the more honest of, uh, academics will be like, yeah, totally. That was like luck. And I'm, uh, I'm really grateful. But like for the most part, people have a really hard time, um, accepting that they are in some way like not um solely responsible for their success especially and like the and i and i think that this plays out differently like depending on who you are and what your background is but for the most part like a lot of academics come from like middle class backgrounds and so on and there's just kind of like a resistance to like thinking about your class position is like a thing that's actually not only informing your income or wealth these like tangible material things but your actual okay. outlook on the world. You know what I mean? So like, and then, so even when you get critical of it, mm-hmm. when it comes into when those, when your critics, you know, your critical ideas come in a conflict with like the things you need to believe about yourself to like kind of have the job you have, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to let go of those things. And like, likewise, if you don't get the job, you're going to be like, well, like, what does that say about me in relation to anything else? And the answer is nothing. It says nothing about you in relation to somebody else, but, um, it's very hard to like, not think about it like that. And I think it's true for all other labor markets as well, but it's just interesting for academics because academics think they're so like, you know, critical of. Yeah. And so, um, so from what you said, would you agree with, you know, because it seems like Althusser cashes out ideology is deeply connected to one's social class, their position with, you know, within the totality. So, you know, to maybe like parse it out, it, it's not just ideology at the, the level of, you know, uh, in, you know, at the level of an individual subject, you can like get things wrong. You know, we all make mistakes and all of that. It seems he wants to make something, in fact, he explicitly says, this is more robust than that. Yes, sure. We all have our subjectivity, but, you know, this ideology is not random. And it Mm -hmm. is playing a role in a a particular uh, organization of society. And so, you know, academics, the fact that most of us come from a particular social class, whether we will or no, often will find ourselves 
at least acting as if we believe the, that ideology. And so I think there's also something interesting for Althusser that ideology is not just in your head. It is about embodied practices and what you do in order to make sense of the actions you are undertaking. Does that sound about right to you all? Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like one way of getting at what ideology is about is, is as you say, right? Like how are ideas materially effective? Like how do they actually make a difference? And like, this is one of the ways, right? In which uh, like it's on the one hand tied to uh, class position and these things aren't like, you know, I think it's important to say here that like these things aren't like fully like deterministic, right? Which is why Mm -hmm. he gets to say things like, yeah, I, you know, I'm quoting Lenin, who's quoting Dietzkin or whatever, says, and I say, I condemn academics as a mass for their being bourgeois, <laughs> but not like without exception. Like, of course, right? Like, of course. You know, and we all is, believe we're the exception. And, and everyone course, thinks they're well, the exception. All yeah. four of us are exceptions. Yes. Well, yes, I do know that I'm oh, the exception. Sure. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Oh, yes, no, all four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, nah, I got that, yeah. No, I am completely captured by ideology. I've barely ever distinguished anything adequate. This is how you know that this man is truly, keep, truly captured by ideology. The one who says that they are captured by ideology is even more ideological yeah. Yeah, than who says totally, they have no ideology. Yeah, I'm totally screwed. Yeah, Feels like a thing Zizek yeah. would say, honestly. Sorry, yeah. again. Sorry, sorry. Back. I wanted to ask a question about the determinism, though, because isn't Althusser often read just like, you know, in sort of the general way as deeply deterministic? You know, he he has issues with humanism. I get it. It's in vogue to be against humanism. But those who still want to hold on to it, you know, their reproach to Althusser is that it just seems like it's all structure all the way down. Is that not right. correct? Yeah, well, I don't know. I I, so like yeah, the, the the charge is that it's structure without a subject, and that like you know humanism, like and so like the humanist ideologies, to use Althusser's way of mm-hmm. of throwing shade at this period of his of his work, <laughs> by which he means people like Sartre, right? Sartrean humanism, oh, uh, but no. but also I know I know. Uh, but then also, like, you know, in more a lot of shade against Sartre in that essay. A lot of shade, right? No, mm-hmm. and he means more broadly, like, you know, existential phenomenology and subjectivism, which, uh, yeah, yeah, big, <laughs> big, big shots fired. Yes, right? yes. And, and, the, contra- and the, the claim on their behalf is like, no, like the subject actually like has a kind of autonomy to it. Uh, it's it's not determined uh, by its conditions. You know, we've got our freedom. Like you, like Lowen just said, it's got a voluntaristic sort of core, whether that's one thing or another. Right. And so like, you know, more sophisticated versions will say uh, it's not individual subjects or transcendental selves. Maybe it's, I don't know, groups, maybe it's spirit, right? It's Geist, who knows? Uh, but like, there's something there that's like free and freely self-determining. Um, yeah. And and on the other side, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, finish Gil. Oh, I was going to say the other version of that, of this like determinism picture that Althusser is accused of is uh, like this like base superstructure thing, right? Where right. like ideology is part of the superstructure yes. and that's determined by the economic base. And like on that score, I think it's actually clear if you look at his texts that like he hates that image. He thinks that mm. the base superstructure thing is like actually not the way to talk about this. Well, that's a non-dialectical understanding of ideology, right? Which isolates it and doesn't understand its interrelation with base or material processes, right? Right, yeah, as though it just moves in, as though the causality moved in one direction only. Yeah, it's an idealist account of ideology. So So I'm going to throw some massive shade at Althusser right now. 
Do um, it. Here I we think go. that like mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I do actually think that like I think that he tries to get away from the base and superstructure model, and I just don't think he's successful. And I think he's not successful because he doesn't actually know anything about economics or what actually happens in space. <laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, so, like, for example, let's do it. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. There's like, I, I mean, there's like this. So, when I read this stuff about ideology, I'm at once like very sympathetic because, like, a sympathetic reading is like this dude is talking about how um, people are trying to like make sense of the world and how, like, as you're saying, they have inadequate ideas about the world. Um, most people, I mean, like take people who try to systematize their ideas and like spend half their lives trying to develop like frameworks that are consistent aside. Most people have lots of inchoate ideas um, because their job isn't to like sit around making them systematic uh, in the same way that it is for like a professional philosopher. So there's a way in which he's talking about kind of like the, um, the things that determine you that you don't always think are determining you and how you come to have ideas about that based on your immediate like experience and then how you kind of rationalize and justify your like way through the world. Um, and I think that's all like extremely good. I think there is a structure to like the way people go about making sense of the world. And I, I think that the kind of like fashional volunteerism that like develops in the um, some of the more like post-structuralist traditions that like came after Althusser is very unappealing for this reason. Mm. But, um, you know, one thing that really influenced me when I started reading Althusser was his debate with E.P. Thompson. So E.P. Thompson goes after him in the poverty of theory um, because he's a historian. And I think that like to be sympathetic to E.P. Thompson and critical at the same time, he's like not a very good theorist because he's a historian. So mm-hmm. like he actually like know like he is trying to communicate to the world that the problem with Althusserian structuralism is that Althusser doesn't is not successful in modeling the like the kind of constrained fluidity that is social struggle. So like how mm-hmm. working class people engage in class formation, mm-hmm. develop working class organizations. Althusser. Mm-hmm. Because he doesn't actually like he has a kind of mechanistic idea of what he of like the base, the economic base. So he doesn't see it to be necessary to like go in the base, figure out what is going on, like what drives people apart, what brings them together, how do they figure that out, what makes them weaker, what makes them stronger. So ideology becomes like the glue that kind of holds the social system together. And um and for that reason, I think the only relationship that Althusser is ever actually able to articulate between the ideology and the base is a functionalist one, and I think that's a mistake. So, mm-hmm. like, I so I, that's a long way of ex- I went on for a while, but I mm-hmm. think that like to me that's the problem with Althusserian ideology, despite the fact that I think Gil's right. There's a lot of really interesting things to say about it. That I agree yeah, with. I I find the the functionalism critique really interesting because you know so i guess like you and uh definitely not disagreeing but seeing you um how to respond is you does it get around the functionalism because by him giving this what he calls a relative autonomy 
the ideology, mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, it seemed to me that what he was saying is that, you know, even though it's a distortion, the relative autonomy allows it to create um, a different type of logic, even within itself, that could be productive of action. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into that because when he starts talking about how religion is often the first encounter or formation of ideology, he makes a strange reference to the United States of talking about the role that religion plays in, you know, black freedom struggles, which mm. in many ways, Christianity, you know, um, through many of the iterations, it was a form of a social bond to push back against, you know, uh, the, the supervening social order. And so I wonder, the, is there like an inconsistency in Althusser uh, there? I don't know. I think like, so I won't, I certainly won't deny that like uh, Thompson like has probably has Althusser's number like on the question of like the material dynamics of organization you know his later work Althusser like condemns the texts from the period that we're looking at as his theoreticist lapse right you didn't tell us that beforehand (laughs) kept that secret well we can read the later stuff too it's interesting though I mean like he and so like he he I think goes back on some of his positions here and not others um but I think that if there's I've never quite understood, uh, maybe I'm showing my cards here, uh, Mm. what the worry was about the theoreticism, uh, because I think that it's correct insofar as he's trying to think about a theory of philosophy here, right? And that, I think, is, like, the the value of this, this, like, uh, these, these texts and trying to triangulate that by way of reference to class struggle, uh, material economic social reality and something like the production of truths in science um but it i i agree though that like yeah when it comes to like how uh you know class conscious form like the formation of class consciousness works in like material groups like i don't think that that's what this text is giving these texts are giving us right they're just not mm. um but i'm also not sure that it's like closed either right like that's why i wanted to i'm not totally i'm not totally sold that um that he fails to um or i guess uh, let me try let me try it like this i think that the the introduction of this concept of relative autonomy is one of his like wild like theoretical like contributions here right which like you know it sort of like slides off the tongue now but like that is like a plea in that is a contradiction in terms like on most ways of understanding what the word autonomy means like if it's autonomous it's not relative to anything and so like the idea of thinking about degrees of relative autonomy within contradictory wholes which is how he talks about the relationship between like material organization and ideology or also between like uh relations and forces of production i think at least like is a potentially um uh promising vector for trying to think about how these things hang together without being fully deterministic um it's also just like I think, like I was talking about. I was thinking about this the other day, like uh, um, in nineteen seventy. Owen, do you know this? When does Rancière write out Althusser's lesson? I think it's uh, like nine, I don't remember the exact. I think year. it's like sixty-eight. It's between like sixty-eight and nineteen seventy or something. Okay. Um, or yeah, Althusser's lesson is a really uh, it's a really wild book. But then the the sort of come on, crit- you think it's irritating? I think it's a very irritating text. <laughs> and I also, I also think, truth I mean, comes I was, out. <laughs> yeah, no, I was think like one of the things that like r- someone like Rancière will say to Althusser as a kind of way of like challenging the project of ideology critique um, 
which like, you know, my cards on the table, I think is an invaluable project that we need to remain sort of committed to in some form or fashion. Um, but he'll like, you know, if you like look at his book, Proletarian Nights, right? Ron Sears, like, look at all of the amazing stuff that these proles were doing. You mean to tell me that they were just captured by ideology? And I'm like, I'm not sure that in order for this picture to work, it needs to be true that like everyone from the working class is confused. Like, I'm not sure that that's the idea here, right? Like, at least empirically. Yeah, yeah that's the caricature of Althusser. Right. Okay. I also think that there there is in that later stuff. I mean, I, I don't know the later Althusser that well, but I have read the Machiavellian Us book. Um, what you know what year that's from, Gil? Seventy one maybe or yeah, it's in, I think it's like mid seventies. I'll look it up. Go okay. Ahead. Um, but there he's the, he, like there's a more robust attempt through a reading of Machiavelli's The Prince to try to reconcile structure and subject. You know, trying to integrate some of the critiques of the structuralist determinism. Uh, and there, what he says is that yes, you know subjects always operate within a, a field of determinacy, but that there are actually like contradictory or conflicting forces at work that are struggling to be the, you know, the dominant force that determines the situation, that determines the future. And that within that kind of equivocal field of force relations in which it's not clear yet, like mm. how things are going to go and mm. they might go one way, I guess in the, in, you know, in the context of his other work, you know, towards like revolutionary struggle, a revolution, or they might go the other way, consolidation of capitalist social forces and political forces, but that within that space, within that void, there is a kind of aleatory opening, an opening for something. So it's not that it's a kind of blank slate for political subjects to be able to to change things, you know, a blank mm -hmm. slate for political subjects to be able to come up with a program and start trying to realize it, mm -hmm. but that you know, there are, again, a kind of equivocal field of force relations in which it's not clear yet where things are going to go and that the subject has a degree of, obviously it's not voluntaristic, but a degree, the possibility to intervene in those structures if it can leverage the right kinds of forces, if it can organize itself in such a way mm. as to make it, you know, uh, make things turn out one way or the other. And, I, you know, I, I'm not sure, again, how, how compelling you would find that, Lillian, or or Gil, or people that are critics of Althusser on that point, but um, mm. I, I think that that's a helpful, yeah, a helpful I mean, place to go. In all fairness, like I'll just say that I think most of the accusations of Althusser that he's like deterministic are just like stupid. I think the question of agency is like a non-problem. I mean, like nice. I, so I think it's a problem insofar as like he's not clear. Like I was saying, he's not. Yeah, I don't think he knows very much about how economics works. So like, what drives people? What would make some formations less likely than others? What makes solidarity happen in one case and not in another? Like, you just aren't going to get that picture from mm -hmm. Altasir, and he doesn't give you the resources to think through that. And I think that's a mis mistake. Um, on the other hand, like, I think this, like, obsession with determinism, like, I don't think he talks about, I don't think, I don't think he's, like, a, like, I think there's only so much agency there is if you actually, as there is, and if you actually believe that there's, like, a social structure at all. Mm -hmm. So, like, people kind of, like, people make decisions within constraints, mm -hmm. and that's what I mean by there's only so much agency as there is so i just don't understand this like constant like hunting for agency like we can't like if we say it's deterministic then we're like dominating people because we're denying their agency and i'm like this isn't like i don't i don't feel like i am dominating anyone like people are you know it, by saying that there are constraints people are opting operating under so like you know, after Altusser, there was the post-structuralist turn, you know, and then everybody was just like, where's the agency? Like, let's find every little bit of agency that people have and, like, prove Marxism wrong by showing how much agency <laughs> everyone has. And I'm just like, actually, I think it's completely Checkmate. consistent. 
<laughs> I know, checkmate. And then, but it's like completely consistent with the social theory to be like, yeah, people like try to resist. And the reason they're more or less successful is because they like try, they organize themselves in ways that are more or less effective right. in like addressing these constraints. It's not for lack of agency, it's for lack mm -hmm. of freedom, you know? So like, it's not, mm. I just feel like that's a false problem. And I'm just not sure what set everyone down the path of like finding the agency. That is really great. And I, you know, so like, look, you know, we're all putting our cards on the table on the first episode. I'm not quite sure, you know, how good that is. So <laughs> I was one of the people who, you know, um, I heard about Althusser before I read him. And I'd heard of the critiques of humanism before I read him. And I came from humanism from, you know, Fanon, what he's trying to work out with humanism. And I tried mm. to think, you know, I tried to give Fanon the benefit of the doubt and think he's not completely duped or anything but it seems as if you know what happens with this you know ideology of humanism this focus on agency is you know it seems as if it's a way to avoid talking about structures yes. it's a way to try to like you know maybe bracket out um social constraints so that one can act as if we can isolate what it is to be an agent without having to talk about that stuff that we've already pitched to the side of politics, to the side of economics and all of that. And if that is the critique, because also be clear, Althusser is as critical of humanism as he is of economism. He thinks, you know, in the sense that they are a doublet. Then that allowed me to understand, oh, up, so apparently there's all this baggage that came with this, you know, this thing called humanism that he's talking about in the mid-1960s. It's actually a theoretical maneuver to background certain issues and to foreground um, a type of subject that doesn't have to actually deal with um, a social reality. Yeah, I think I that's could really like. Cool. Yeah, I think like we mentioned Sartre before, right? And so like that's I'm gonna I'm gonna both I'm gonna both save him and dunk on him real fast. Uh, here, that's right? how you have to do it with him, though. You have yeah, to. you have to. Well, so I was like thinking about how like I think that like it's the early Sartre who is like a really good stand-in for this sort of like volunteer uh, this 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 humanism that foregrounds a kind of agency or freedom that lets us get away with not talking about structure and social reality and like you know to be clear i don't think that that's his last word on the subject right i think his later work he really tries very hard to figure out how to think these things together in a dialectical way which is you know please read critique a dialectical reason like, if you are out there reason. please right. please <laughs> but like you know but like i'm thinking of the lines in being in nothingness where he's like yo it, what are you if you're in a prison you're still free baby and it's like this can't be the right way to think about this right like that can't be right like I guess uh, maybe ontologically, but what? Who cares? Like, what are we talking about, right? And so, like, that's the sort of caricature here. And again, that's not his final word on the I subject. You, you still free, baby? <laughs> yeah. What are you, just yeah, just transcend like how you know your options of your factically given options for how you might respond to mm. when the prison guard shows up, and it's like you're in fucking jail. Like I don't know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> So like the other thing I wanted to say, yeah, yeah. I was wait just so say, say wait I thought you said you were gonna like dunk on Sartre and then save him where's the uh, well, oh yeah, yeah that that we yeah what that wasn't his final word is that the save yeah yeah that's that's the save we save we yeah he's smarter than that sentence he wrote I believe I do I I'm just, just gonna affirm you because we're a 
we're start saving people. Here. Yeah, we're the yes. start savers. Yo, yeah. you will have That's to wait bond. for our start episode for our more robust saving. But yo, <laughs> yeah, I didn't let's do a very do, good job here. <laughs> let's do a little more dunking, just like real quick, because in being nothingness, he also has this passage where he talks about being sad. He's like, "Well, no, you're not being sad. You are oh, choosing no. the comportment no, of one who up. is sad, and you know how I know this is true. This is Sart. Well, when a visitor comes comes over, all of a sudden you're happy and you make an appointment with yourself to be sad again after they leave so believable if i could just make appointments with myself to get out of my sad moves sign me up i've forgotten i I keep forgetting keep forgetting to make appointments with myself to not be depressed well i guess that's on me well yeah you know that's bad faith my dude that's bad so. i am <laughs> you don't really not want to be depressed that's I really Ooh, there it ultimately is. want to there be depressed there it is i'm in deep bad faith it's a tough time <laughs> the other thing i wanted to say though um like to to get us back to out this say real quick uh is um uh he's got all these lines and so we i don't know if any of you looked at uh a couple of these other essays of his from like 1965 uh, which are in four marks, and I'm thinking of contradiction mm. and overdetermination, mm. um, and on the materialist dialectic. And there, when he's talking about this sort of de- this relation, this uh, causal or expressive relation between things like uh, economics or the econ- the economic base or infrastructure, to use the the image that he's trying consciously to overcome, and uh, the the ideological superstructure, he always says things like, "In the last instance." It's determined by the base. And he puts it in scare quotes. And then he says things like, and the last instance, that moment never comes. That ne- that's not like a that's not like something that ever actually happens. Okay. I know. But I think that like part of what he's trying to get at is like a, the logic of a tendency, maybe is one way to, to, to try to unpack this. Right? That like there mm. are like ten tendencies mm. embedded within these social relations in terms of the kinds of subjectivities produced or ideological sort of milieus that are given rise to, uh, which isn't the same as saying that there's like, you know, a one-to-one direct causal relation. This can only go one way. Uh, And in that gap, right, as I go into saying, right, this like sort of non-closed field of ideas, right? Now now there's something like uh, an opening for... For, yeah, for like theoretical contestation and trying to empower truer ideas and and disempower false Mm. ones. Um, But the lonely hour, yeah, the lonely hour of the economy that never arrives, he says. Oh, that's a good line. That's a good line. So this actually brings me to what I'd like to hear from from you all, because clearly Althusser thinks that this should change or transform our practice of philosophy he seems to want to give a a particular role philosophy can play in struggle and so what i got from it you know not from the essays from four marks but you know uh from uh lenin and philosophy is you know philosophy can play this retrospective role of you of of giving meaning to uh formulations and great texts of philosophy but i imagine can also give a a retrospective role to perhaps uh movements or things that are emerging within the social structure and so what is this you know different type of practice of philosophy althusser is looking for because you know i also think that this can kind of justify why we call this podcast what's left of philosophy you know and i feel like that 
phrase is also kind of in Althusser's text. So what is left for the role of philosophy here? It's totally in Althusser's text. Okay, yes. I didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't even, I didn't even know it was until I read it. And then I was like, Gil is so sly. He like made us name it after Althusser, actually. This isn't even Yes, um, yes. It accident. was all Gil, by the way. I didn't make anyone <laughs> do anything. Ruse. You're all self-choosing free subjects, okay? Oh, bad faith again. <laughs> that bad faith again. Um, so like w- one of the interesting things he says in this text, right. Is that like when he says this stuff that is like super peculiar that like philosophy has no history. Right. right. And and he's like, I'm just picking up on this, like completely, like almost, almost like aggressively, like hostilely simplistic conception that Lenin buys, which is that his, the history of philosophy is just like this weird eternal struggle between idealism and materialism. Right. right? And like it's like I it's, love that. I'm, yeah, I'm down that with div- that. That's yeah. one dividing line. I'm so, I'm so for yeah, it. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm totally down with that. So like so yeah, and so that's why he says it's got no history. If it's just the same struggle over and over again, with like you know the new idealists show up and they figure out how to dunk on last year's materialists, and then next year the the new materialists arrive and are like, no, here's a new problem for the the newer idealism. It's like we're never actually nothing ever actually happens, right? Mm. And so it's like true. <laughs> yeah, <I feel> like- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Lily and Dali are just like, yes. Like, oh no. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so like when he thinks that like Marxism means that there's a new practice of philosophy, he's he's trying to say, like, okay, this means that like, you know, he's on the side of the materialists, obviously. But we can't just like go on like saying materialism again, right? Mm. In in response to the latest idealism in a way that doesn't matter, in a way that doesn't do anything. Like the new the new practice that he's talking about is is this sort of like uh, instead of instead of like elaborating the the newest materialism right which will which will always turn out to be like you know the condition or ground for the the next the next version of idealism to do this work of of yeah drawing these lines right uh, distinction uh, trying to isolate the mm. truths that are produced by the like ambient uh, sciences and scientific practices. And those that are produced by uh, the class struggle, right? In the in this in the site of politics and political contestation, um, which is to say, to root to 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 tether ph- uh, philosophy to practice first and foremost, right? Like to have mm. its focus and emphasis be on practice as political practice and as as the practice of the production of scientific knowledges or truths, um, and that's not the same as elaborating a new materialist account of either of those things, right? Mm. I think is, is, is supposed to be what's like novel about like this Marxist practice of philosophy. I feel like as that sounds good to me, I think that's true, but like I work in critical theory, you know, and I feel like at, at the top of like every fifth paper is like what critical theory is supposed to do is like, ex, uh, explain or elaborate on the desires and wishes of the age you know this like famous marx quote and so like everyone thinks that's what they're doing they're like looking at these movements and like they're like here's the movement here's its demands let me like fit this into like my philosophical worldview and there's a way in which this becomes like so impressionistic that this drives me up the wall Mm. like every decade it's like there's a new protest movement and people are like well the old thing is out and the new thing is in and i'm like okay but why doesn't this have something to do with the fact that you're trying to like market your ideas on the academic like circuit? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and so there's like how, I don't know what I'm asking. Like, I just think that 
there's this risk of being very impressionistic and also like using that to like your investment and like what movements are doing and what they're thinking and what their demands are to like justify your own like careerist move. Like imagine all the people after alt after Occupy that were like, yeah, horizontalism, we don't need any leadership. <laughs> and that became like for five years, it's like, let's, let's explore this further. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then like worked. times change and, <laughs> and it worked and, and horizontalism was good and smart and we figured it out. We right. crushed so, it. We do you crushed know what it. I'm saying, though? Like, it's yes. like attaching I mean, yeah. it to practice. I'm, I'm for mm -hmm. it, but like, I'm not actually sure that's what Marxists think. Like, I think Marxists have um, a social scientific methodology. Like, if you are into that, that like guides the way that you interpret things. Like, there's kind of like a, a that's I think that's what he means by science. There's like a, a, a methodology that's at play that isn't just like let's absorb mm -hmm. this new thing into my paradigm. Yeah, that's really helpful because you know he he wants to insist on he wants to insist on the fact that philosophy ought to be induced by I think is the word he uses like induced by or indexed to to politics right to particularly to class struggle but then yeah so the question of how to do that is one that I that I've kind of struggled with a little bit mm -hmm. because clearly he doesn't mean I'm really I'm really happy you use the word impressionistic because that, that is I think so much of what the attempt to kind of calibrate your work to things that are happening in the political world turns into a kind of I don't know it turns into like takes right and so and you end up just like disseminating mm -hmm. takes okay they're like a little more sophisticated than our twitter takes you know they're they're elaborated at mine or know, not greater. <laughs> yeah, that's true. can your twitter takes are definitely your Twitter takes are definitely better than your work. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I kid. Your work's brilliant, but but uh, but yeah. So I mean, it's I don't really my, have my, my Twitter takes don't need to pass peer review. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but they have to pass the you know the Twitterverse is rough, man. Yeah, like <laughs> woo, I prefer peer yeah. review. I would win. Yeah, exactly. Like damn, knives out on on the Twitterverse. No, so I don't really have an answer to what that looks like, but it is one of the things after reading that Lenin and philosophy piece that. I was left the most thinking about, you know, what does it mean to mm -hmm. actually have philosophy, have your philosophical practice be indexed to and induced by and spurred by politics and by struggle, but not have it necessarily, because I don't think he means that that means your philosophy is about struggle. Like what you talk about all the time in your philosophy is like things that are happening in the world all the time, right? It's somehow, mm. I don't know, that's the, that's the struggle that that... Yeah, that I've been having. And yeah, the thing I just want to say real quick, because, you know, uh, especially that was really helpful, uh, Lily and Owen, is that he also um, seems to say that philosophy risks introducing deviations or, you know, the French word exactly. being décollage uh, in the praxis, praxis that leads to defeat. So, you know, it, it seems mm -hmm. as if there are times when philosophy does index itself, the things that are going on, and kind of mutilates those things and leads it, mm -hmm. to, leads it astray, miscasts it. Or so, capitalizes on them. And, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I'm, one, intrigued by what you're saying, Owen, that, you know, it's not saying that your philosophy has to be talking about every you know struggle that happens to be happening at that moment and i wonder if that's about like again the time lag but i am still mm -hmm. it's weird to hear him say something along the lines of you know what allows philosophy to be ideological to you know the reason why the instincts of you know the intellectual needs to be revolutionized is that it has it has some perceived autonomy from these other states of affairs but then when it tries to no longer have that autonomy, it can actually still, you know, uh, butcher 
or you know ruin what is going on there. Mm-hmm. And by ruin, I mean like miscast it, misinterpret it, and you know, or capitalize on it. And so, is he saying is science supposed to allow you to have some sort of autonomy from your impressions? To use the language that Lillian's using, being impressionistic, is that what the role of science is supposed nice. to do? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, so that sounds right. I mean, the other thing, the other thing to point out is that, like, uh, so he's describing great philosophy as this, like, uh, this, like, weird repetition of like this age-old thing, right? This over and over materialism, idealism. Um, But then he says that the lines of the philosophical front are displaced according to the transformations of the scientific conjuncture, i.e. according to the state of the sciences and their problems, and according to the state of the philosophical apparatuses that these transformations induce. So we have that that word induce here. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important that he doesn't say that uh, the, the, the front lines of the philosophical the, like, struggle are, uh, are determined, are displaced according to the political struggle, right? They're displaced by the science, the, the 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 transformations in science and the scientific mm. uh, knowledges that are produced, which I think is interesting. Isn't it by both though? Well, so what he says here is that um, uh, the, the the two sides of this, if we want to try to hold them together, uh, is that here's a, another quote from this is very close to the end of the text. Philosophy represents politics in the domain of theory, or to be precise, with the sciences. And vice versa, philosophy represents scientificity in politics with classes engaged in the class struggle. But I think that like this is why like he this is oh man, a whole other claim of his that we haven't even touched on yet, right? Like he says that Marx opens up this new continent yeah. of science, oh, right? Yeah. Amazing. It's amazing. Science so, of history. Yeah. Science mathematics, of history. mathematics amongst the ancient Greeks and then mm-hmm. Galilean physics. And then and historical then materialism. History, historical Those materialism are the three great tectonic movements. I mean, yo, in the I think this is totally true. <laughs> like, I don't really know. Like, okay. Oh. Um, Here I mean, listen. <laughs> there. Okay, so if you take a, a a quick look at like every major like humanities or social scientific discipline aside from history, I think the historians are usually like pretty level-headed they have their own like internal methodology game going on and um and i don't i I don't know i can't speak to that so well but look at sociology there's not a single thing in sociology that isn't a reaction to marxism not a single thing every (laughs) single major social Mm. theory and i'm you could see me on the video i'm like doing air quotes (laughs) every single thing is a reaction to marxism so you've got like emile durkheim you've got marx and then you've got Weber, which is mm-hmm. a reaction to mm-hmm. Marxism. And mm-hmm. every single thing that's happened in sociology in the past 150 years is Bourdieu. basically. Um, and But Bourdieu is a reaction to Marxism. The whole mm-hmm. paradigm is trying to find an alternative to Marxism because it's like bourgeois social science is like battling its own demon. You know, so like it has to kind of keep the specter mm-hmm. of Marx in the background to like prove why it's right. Um, so like if you could just beat the like, what's the expression? Like, uh. What, like it's kind of like whack-a-mole with Marxism mm. you know it's like if you could just like beat it down <laughs> everywhere you see it then like fine, right. finally it'll go away but the problem is that the social conditions that Marx analyzes are still present and Marxism mm-hmm. isn't going to go away and it's never fared very very well in the academy but it's not going away outside of the academy because the conditions still call for it you know what I mean so like mm. nice. there's that dynamic in sociology and frankly I think philosophy is the same shit like Every fucking paper I read is like, well, Marxism got it wrong. Marxism got it wrong. I'm going beyond Marxism. The person I'm reading 
went beyond oh, Marxism. Oh, man, we like, love the whole going beyond is, Marxism. Oh, yeah. yeah, like, going beyond Marxism is, we like, the game, it. you know? And so my question, and, like, literally, my question is always, like, if you think the, if you think Marxism is so wrong, and my guess is that you only know one Marxist in your life, if you know any of them, and, you, like, I don't really know what to I, say. Like, you just, you keep, like, being preoccupied with this. But, like, if everyone around you disagrees and you disagrees, then just leave it alone. Like, I don't talk about things I don't agree with at all and that I think are outdated. <laughs> It's embarrassing. Shut your mouth. Like what? It's okay. Just shut so, your mouth. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Silence is golden. I learned that from when I went to the movies. You know, yeah. back back in the day. Back so in the day. That's that's my shit talk of the evening because I do feel like if the, the if if it's not the case that this wasn't like a, if historical materialism wasn't um, a break in that and if you want to I don't know if you should carry it. Carry, characterize it as a break he touched on something true that's what i'm saying it's mm, like if, yeah. if there is a kind of like revolution in like like a his, uh, science of history or whatever then to me that's what makes sense of this like weird paranoia in the academy with marxism mm -hmm. hmm. you know what's funny is you know it feels like if any of our listeners out there are tired of hearing about marx and marxism want to truly go away well, completely change the social conditions, and <laughs> oh man, you will have That's your a wish. great point. I will never talk Welcome, about comrades. Marxism again once we abolish <laughs> capitalist no, under, relations. Under full, under full communism, exchange. yeah, just give us full communism. You'll never have to hear his name again. Look, I might switch <laughs> sides under communism. I might be the new idealist. Oh hell yeah! I'll be like, oh, yeah. About it. yeah. Don't you want to see us as idealists? You know, like make it so. <laughs> well, we. I won't. mean, I no. I just want to watercolor by the river and like. Think and like dream my mm. dreams. I don't really want to do what I'm doing now forever under communism. Oh no, absolutely not. All right. So I actually feel like um, not to like you know, step in like this, but there's so much to talk about even more with Althusser. Like you know, we didn't even talk about what he means by ep epistemological break. But yeah. I think you know, for now, I think you know maybe we can you. Know, wrap it up a little bit and sure i don't know i i could see us doing another episode in althusser honestly maybe like, we're just an althusser podcast we just talk about <laughs> althusser oh for one, oh, for no. for it's one gil, hour every two gil can you let us get an audience before you send them all away first can you let that happen uh no okay i guess I, I guess i <laughs> i suppose i want an audience okay yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll come back to this. Well, maybe not immediately. There's definitely more to talk about. I think you're right. Um, Absolutely. I got, I got a lot from this, honestly. And you know what? This is our first episode, but y'all are so brilliant. I am so happy Aww. to be doing this with you all. Like, <laughs> you know, y'all can't you, see, you can't see my face, but I'm smiling. So this isn't. We're all know, beaming. We're all beaming. Yeah. So nothing but good vibes here, even when we dunking on people. <laughs> still vibe. Still vibing. Click Click, sub but love. click subscribe, follow yeah. us on Twitter. Like and subscribe, follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. Uh, if you like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Uh, we'll also be putting things up on a YouTube page at some point in the near future. Uh, and we're, yeah, really glad that you joined us for this. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Bye.